0: Today's our weekly class. Um, next week, you recall we're, we're meeting twice, Tuesday and Wednesday, um, because Tuesday's Brandeis Monday, because uh, there's a kind of one-to-one correspondence thing going on there, Tuesday to Monday. Uh, God, you know, by the end of the semester, you will just be rolling on the floor laughing your asses off when I make one-to-one correspondence jokes, I am sure. You
1: start every class off with it.
0: I know, and no one laughs. Are you bored, or are you just not getting them yet? Yeah, okay. <laughs> A polite silence. Um, okay, so we're behind. Did you guys actually read the Augustine? I thought not. Um, okay, so for Tuesday, you should read those five. Um, they're, in, they're, I think, in your book and in most books, they're five books. Um, that is to say, each book is, um, divided into very short chapters, so I'm not asking you to read, like, four pages. Why are you laughing? <laughs> you mean about one-to-one correspondence? No, not I'm so excited I have a video for two weeks, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <not> so <sorry. laughs> All right. Um, okay, Augustine, for next week. Um... He will be, these are Augustine's confessions. What confessions um, means there is his testimony. He describes out of his own life how it is that he came to um, convert and be a Christian. And it was essentially um, by thinking about stuff and being puzzled and getting anxious and getting more and more anxious about um, not being able to make sense of the world. Um, not being able to make sense of the ideas by which he tries to make sense of the world. Um, So the parts that you'll be reading the first four books are the first four books, and they're all really interesting. And then book 11 is Augustine on the nature of time. And he is thinking through, this is a good way for us to start talking about Aristotle today. Um, And also I hope to get to talk about the Poincaré, which was short and... Um, You may not have found the proofs by recursion that easy, but um, once you get them, I think you don't actually have to work each one out. Um, But otherwise, the Poincaré should have struck you as reasonably easy, um, the idea. But at any rate, we'll go over the ideas that he was talking about today. Um, But like Aristotle, Augustine is very... Interested in and much more openly puzzled by the nature of time. He's also interested in and puzzled by the nature of space, um, but the nature of space is um, a kind of immediate question for him. The nature of time takes a little bit more <coughs> subtlety for him. He says very famously what he says about time. You'll find this on like celestial seasoning tea bags and things like that. That if no one asks him what time is, he has no trouble thinking he knows. But if someone asks him, he just can't say. Um, As soon as he starts trying to think about what time is, um, he just gets caught up in knots. So he um, spends some, what would you call it, time trying to figure out what time is. Or maybe he spends some space trying to figure out what time is. Anyhow, um, one of the things that Aristotle <laughs> suggesting, did you guys, um, I asked you this last time and then I did not stay for an answer, as Bacon says about Pontius Pilate. Um, how hard did you guys find the Aristotle? It was hard. Um, it
2: didn't
0: make sense. Sorry?
2: It really didn't make any sense. It didn't make
0: sense or it was just kind of... It sounds of- like he's saying
1: the same thing over and over again. Like he states something and then uses that as a therefore statement to make that same statement twice. Uh-huh. And so it- I feel like, and also the article itself jumped in after he had made some point about something. Well, it's not an
0: article, it's a long book. The the book, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so he's working out various ideas. This is the book called The Physics, um, is mainly what we were looking at. And what he's working out in The Physics is um, just the laws or ways of trying to generalize what we know about the physical world. Amanda?
3: I've read a lot of other so I don't find it the most tricky. It's kind of like he's having a discussion with himself. Yeah. And it's been written down. Um, yeah. You know, he's kind of debating back and forth. And it's like reading a lot of the religious proofs that a lot of old philosophers had, where they already have their answer and they just have to make a proof to get to it. Uh
0: huh. It's
3: kind of like reading those. You, sorry? It's kind of like reading those
0: in in a way. Yeah, but it is, and he sort of has an answer, but he's also just trying to do something um, which I think is really interesting and is especially interesting um, in contrast with someone like Zeno, um, and maybe also in contrast with someone like Diogenes. So remember Diogenes walks across the room, Zeno says, Mm -hmm. you're not really doing that because you can't be? Um, and Diogenes says, no, dude, I am, so there. Um, And it's like, tastes great, less filling, but who knows. Um, What Aristotle is trying to do, and what I think is really wonderful about Aristotle as a philosopher, um, is that he's trying to explain not stuff that you don't know, which is Zeno. That is, Zeno is basically saying, if you think about it, motion's impossible. Um, It looks possible, but it's impossible, um, and it may take you a while to see this, but when you do see this, you'll freak out, um, and you won't know what to do. And, um, and it doesn't matter that you won't know what to do, because you can't do anything anyhow, because motion's impossible. Um, so Zeno is saying, analyze really carefully your sense perception, and you will see that that sense perception um, is self-contradictory. Um, So Zeno is offering you a really startling contradiction to your own experience. Then Diogenes comes along and says, I don't care how much you contradict my own experience, my own experience contradicts your contradictions. Um, And there's no way that your contradictions can be right since it's more obvious that I'm walking across the room than it is that an arrow or that I have to first cross half the room and then half of that half and half of that half and so on. Um, so what you're doing is obfuscating an issue um, where I can cut through those obfuscations, cut cut the Gordian knot. Do people know what the Gordian knot is? Anyone? What is it? Ken? Um, the Gordon, the Kenny, right? You like to be called Kenny? Yeah. Sorry, Kenny. <laughs> it doesn't matter
2: much. Kenny is usually the one most people call me. Okay
0: almost a one-to-one correspondence between... <laughs> 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 that is so... I can't... Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Gordian knot um, is this mythical knot, um, which I believe is Alexander. Yes. Um, Alexander the... The Great. Who is in one-to-one correspondence mid-name-wise with... Kermit the Frog. Yes, and Winnie the Pooh. That is the canonical form of that joke. What Alexander the Great and Winnie the <laughs> Pooh have in common? First. Yes. <laughs> uh. Okay, good. Go on. That's the de- that's the definite article. Go on. So um, he was presented
2: with this immense knot.
0: By whom? Do you know? Delphic Oracle said whoever can untie this knot will be the ruler of the world.
2: And he just takes out his sword and goes, and says, I untied the knot. Yeah, he and says. And he went on to you know, dominate most of the world. That's what his
0: world. Right. Yeah, so basically... Um, The Gordian Knot is an incredibly complicated, a tangled knot, a work of art. It's been around for centuries. It's got divine status. Alexander the Great is told, whoever can undo the Gordian Knot will be king of the world. Um, He says, that knot, with his sword, and no more Gordian Knot. Um, So cutting the Gordian Knot is is proverbial for um, not doing things the hard way. Um, doing things the easy way. It's sort of like do you guys are you too young to have watched um Firefly? So might okay, should in the high school curriculum. Good. All right, glad to hear it. Um so there's one what's the captain's name, the Nathan Fillion character? Mal. Mal. yeah yeah so there's one where he gets he's, he's talking to some villain and they get to um, a total impasse where he wants to you know he says if, if you do what I say' I'm gonna to I'm gonna let you live and the villain says no 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 because blah 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 and there's a total impasse and he says um, damn and just shoots him kicks him out <laughs> so that's cutting the Gordian knot if you need an example of that from Firefly um, okay. Anyone know who Alexander the Great's tutor was? Who taught him everything he knew okay. about philosophy as opposed to conquering the world? Yeah. Aristotle? Aristotle, yes. So, so Aristotle was a student of Plato. Plato's student of Socrates. Socrates is a student of Parmenides and of Zeno. And look where it leads to. It leads to Alexander the Great as a student of, um, of Aristotle. Um, as Yates puts it, here's the complete part of this class. <clears throat> Anyone quote what Yeats says about Aristotle and Alexander the Great in Among School Children? Plato thought nature a pa- Plato thought nature a spume that plays upon a ghostly paradigm of things. So that's Plato in a line. Plato thought nature a spume that plays upon a ghostly paradigm of things, solider Aristotle played the taws, taws are whips the teachers would use back in the good old days when students pulled out their laptops, um, <laughs> solider Aristotle played the taws upon the backside of a king of kings. So. That's Yeats on Aristotle as whipping Alexander the Great as a boy when he wasn't paying attention. So Alexander the Great then learned to cut the Gordian knot. Um, Diogenes cuts the Gordian knot by walking across the room and says no matter how subtle and intricate and entangled Zeno's arguments are, how knotted up into impossibility those arguments are, he walks across the room and that cuts the Gordian not. So those are the two possibilities. Neither of those is what Aristotle wants. On the one hand, he doesn't want to um, show things that are counter to all our knowledge and all our intuition and everything we know about the world. Aristotle thinks that we do know what the world is like. Um, we have massive, constant, unrelenting evidence of of what the world is like. Yeah, he's he would be the he would be the um, the um, the classical antiquity version of an empiricist. Um, he's looking at the world as it is um, and taking that as his data. He's a scientist. Um, and he's, that's why he writes a book called The Physics, which simply means um, physical things, the physical world. That's what the word physics means originally in the way Aristotle is using it. So on the one hand, look, there's a world. We see it all the time. If Zeno crosses the street and a chariot is bearing down upon him and honking its horse or whatever chariots did, um, he doesn't say, it is impossible for me to get out of the way, but that doesn't matter because the chariot will never hit me. Um, He gets out of the way. That's the world we really know. Um, On the other hand, he wants to get it right He wants to get right how these things happen. So he doesn't just want to say, look, there's no problem here. Um, There's no problem when it comes to um, doing stuff, but there is maybe some problem in trying to figure out not whether Zeno is wrong, but why Zeno is wrong. So Aristotle thinks hard. He finds Zeno very, very valuable. That's why there's so much Um, Zeno in Aristotle, why so much of what we know about Zeno, we know from Aristotle and from Aristotle's commentators um, quoting Zeno, he wants to see what, why Zeno is wrong, but it's obvious to him from the start that Zeno is wrong. And the reasons why Zeno is wrong, Aristotle probably doesn't get them, in fact, he doesn't get them entirely right. Um, but it's only really in the 20th century that you can appreciate a better anti-Zeno argument than the one Aristotle gets. Really only in the 20th century. And in fact, the questions that arise in the debate between Aristotle and Zeno about motion and therefore about space are questions that don't get, that some people think still are not definitively solved, but that don't get much closer to solution until Einstein. Einstein actually, Aristotle raises questions that it takes Einsteinian physics to answer. Um, And people didn't know that that's what it would take until Einstein came along. But then when Einstein comes along, it turns out that a lot of these questions um, are questions that Einstein, not Newton, but Einstein, is able to solve. So the basic question that, we're, that Aristotle brings up, he, he brings up several, um, but the pages that I had you read are questions about the nature of motion, the relation of time to motion, the relation of time to consciousness, or what he calls having a soul, and the nature of infinity. And all of those are related things, although I gave you um, sections from two different parts of the physics and then a page from the metaphysics. Um, And if you, I'm sure you didn't, but if you read the latte introductions to these things, why is it called metaphysics, anyone? All right, yay, because it came after physics. So when people talk about metaphysics, um, that just happens to be where in Aristotle's works um, a certain book appeared. Um, So... um, But what he says in all these things is consistent. So the first thing that he is asking, or we could say one of the first things that he's asking in thinking about Zeno, he's trying to figure out what motion is. And we could ask this under the more general question, what is change? Because motion is change of place, let's say. Um, So the puzzle about motion is first of all, is there a puzzle? If something is moving or if two things are moving with respect to each other, is there a puzzle in the fact that they're moving with respect to each other? So let's just say that we take a reference system and we call that stillness. Um, Do you know what Einstein will call that? um, The reference system that you start with? Sorry? No, no, no. It's in the theory of relativity, he calls it an inertial frame. Um, You don't need to know that, you can just say, or you will eventually need to know that. You don't need to know it now. But what you could say is, look, let's just say that, um, let's peg the sun as something not moving. The sun is just floating in the universe, or if you know enough astronomy to know that's not quite uh, as easy to say as that, let's just say the galaxy isn't moving. We sometimes talk about reference frames against the fixed stars. Um, do you know the term fixed stars? Is that relatively familiar to people? Sorry? Yeah, they talk about the fixed stars. Um, they had no idea that stars were suns, by the way. Um, It was only around 1600 that it was first guessed that when you looked at a star, you were looking at something that was like the sun. And it was only, I think, in the early 1700s that people knew that for sure. Um, Up until then, when people talked about stars, they thought they were just these tiny lights in the sky. Um, It's really recent that stars were understood to be suns like our sun. Um, But the fixed stars are generally what navigation um, is plotted by, um, what sailors look at before they have GPS systems to figure out where they are in the ocean and so on. Um, So you could say motion occurs against a background of the fixed stars. So the question Zeno asks, which Aristotle thinks is um, a question that needs answering, is when something is moving, where is it? at any instant and what you might want to say is it's wherever it is it's right there it's like you take a snapshot of it it's like if you turn on a strobe um, ask your parents if you don't know what they are Um, it was a disco thing you probably wouldn't understand but um, if you turn on a strobe what you'll see is a succession of still things right Um, you guys have had that experience um, so you see a succession of still things, and the question is, so where's the motion? Now, if at any instant a moving thing is where it is at that instant, then where, is, where does its motion reside? Where is it moving? And if it's not where it is at that instant... But if it's in two places at once, which it would seem to have to be to be moving, then how can it be in two places at once? That's one, que- one way that Zeno poses the question. Not for us the easiest way, because I, as I say, I think Achilles and the tortoise is um, the most vivid way of putting it. But in a sense, that's what it comes down to. If my hand is moving, where is it at T sub three? And if it is somewhere at T sub three, how can I say that it's moving? But if it isn't somewhere at T sub three, then where is it? Is it at two places at once? No. So it's really hard to think of motion without either thinking that a moving object is in two places at once, as it is leaving one place and going to the next place or going to another place. But it's equally hard to think that it's only in one place because then how is it moving? So that's how Zeno is raising the question and that's the way that Zeno raises the question that Aristotle is interested in. Do you guys, you all, all y'all, do you find that at all a compelling question? You do. You've thought about that before. About
1: that before. I, hate, I hate some problems in calculus. When you tip and have different points on a graph Information, we have to find out the, the best curve to fit that. It never really made sense to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, good. It's like Zeno's not thinking four dimensionally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we'll just think four dimensionally and there's no problem. Um, no, it's true. We're not, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like he just has a totally different definition of
3: motion. That motion is, isn't it changing in place over time? hmm. Right. Change. And like he, he says, so how can at any one moment it be moving? It's like you can't
0: look at it at any one moment, you can look at it between two moments. Okay, so, can, so either or both of you, can you explain to everyone else what happens if you're thinking four dimensionally? Time is a dimension, so. Does that help everyone? <coughs> no, okay. Help these but, good I mean, people.
3: You
2: probably better well, I'm, I'm not sure, but um, think, about, think about time. Like, I mean, you've all seen a flipbook or a movie or whatever. You um, think if you... Let's, let's just to simplify this into ways that we're familiar with visualizing because uh, we, aren't, we don't see in four dimensions. Think about space as two dimensions and time as a third dimension pointing through your flipbook. So, uh, or rather, so you have, you have this flipbook and you, it's, time is composed of these discrete intervals. So you, make, you can make the pages thinner you can keep making them thinner until you have a continuous...
0: Like that single book in the footnote at the end of the Library of Babel. <laughs>
2: exactly.
0: With infinite number of pages. Yeah.
2: So, so you have this continuous object, which is three-dimensional, that at, if you take any one slice of it, it tells you the state of your universe at any given time. Um, but so basically thinking four-dimensionally is just thinking of time as this sort of fourth axis where you have a three-dimensional snapshot that moves smoothly, and uh, when we're experiencing time, we're just moving the, the frame at which we're snapshotting that um,
0: four-dimensional object. Okay, so so just to try and repeat that. Um, one, the one version, there, I think there were actually a series of, there was an Edge seminar on this, which was... Um, what is the most important discovery? They asked a bunch of um, worthies what the most important discovery of um, the last hundred years was. And one of them said the non-existence of time. Um, And so what does that mean, the non-existence of time? Um, And the way it is put in certain versions of contemporary physics is that um, in the same way that you could, like, take a cucumber and say one edge of the cucumber is here, the other edge is here, and it's all cucumber in between. And you could slice up that cucumber into little cucumber slices. And you could say slice number one is all the way at the right, slice number um, half cucumber is halfway down the cucumber, slice number last slice in the cucumber, whatever it is, is all the way over here. And um, that all you have is a bunch of slices of cucumber. They're all put together into a single cucumber. And to ask, so where is the cucumber slice? The answer is anywhere you slice it, but the whole cucumber goes from here to here. Now, we could say that our lives or our universe is sliced in time in the same way. That what we all are is let us say um, 5 foot 11 inch tall, um, however, um, whatever other dimensions of your body you are around, and 80 years long object. So an object has um, height, width, depth, and duration. All four of those things are what an object is. It is, or let's take our cucumber since, since it um it's a more appealing image. Um you have a, a six inch cucumber, it's six inches long, it's uh maybe got a, um a radius of um crosswise, it has a radius of an inch, and um um Lengthwise, let's say it's, it's somewhat elliptical. It's a radius of an inch and a half. Um, and that cucumber um, goes from seed to... Um, I don't want that cucumber. I'm throwing it out, since I don't want to be more vivid than that, um, in the course of eight weeks. Um, so that cucumber has four dimensions. It's length, it's um, vertical diameter, it's horizontal diameter, and how long it is in the world. And so if we take a time slice of the world, depending where we take a time slice of the entire world, we might cut through that cucumber or we might not. So if we take a time slice of the world, let's say we have that cucumber from September 1st through October 15th of 2012. If we take a time slice of the world, then... We would have us in that time slice. We would exist in that time slice. Mitt Romney would exist in that time slice. Obama would exist in that time slice. Newt Gingrich would exist in that time slice. The Red Sox would exist in that time slice, although barely. Um, all sorts of things would exist in that time slice, including a cucumber would exist in that time slice. It wouldn't be a slice of cucumber, it would be the whole cucumber in that time slice. But after 6 weeks, no more cucumber in the slices of, in the time slices of the world we're doing then. So it's not that time is passing. It's that there's a thing that is inertly existent in the universe. It just is there without any change in it whatever. See, it's starting to sound like Parmenides. There's this thing called the universe, which is just there. And nothing ever changes in the universe. It's always the same. But it's not the same at any every point. It's not as in Parmenides, something that is absolutely uniform. No, part of the universe is very bright and very hot. Part of the universe is very dark and very cold. Part of the universe is noisy, part of the universe is silent, part of the universe has stars in it, part of the universe does not have stars in it. Um, it's all there, and where we are in that universe, is it's as though we are moving from one side of it to the other. And that motion that we experience from one side to the other is what we call time, but in fact, it's all there at once, but in four dimensions. So that is essentially the argument made um, by by Einsteinianly-oriented modern physicists. Yeah? Speaking of
2: cucumbers, um, Douglas
0: Adams once said, time is an illusion, and much time doubly so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. OK, good. Um,
1: Why do we struggle so, so much then to understand that single slice of time, that, that moment that if there is motion within it, why doesn't it exist in two places or just one? Or, like, is it just because of our perception of the world that we struggle to understand these things we can't see, really? So,
0: Carolyn, do you want to answer? Oh, I was going to ask you a good question. Okay. That. Well, no, I think that's a really crucial question. Do you want to answer, Emmy? Okay, except that what he would say, so there, on the one hand, it seems like a solution. On the other hand, there, might, there is a subjective problem, and that's something that Aristotle is going to get to, although for him, that's a feature, not a bug. So the solution is that if you ask, is the arrow here or here? Um, when it's here, is it actually there or is it, is it somewhere else? The answer is yes, yes. The arrow is everywhere. The arrow is leaving the bow, and the arrow is hitting the target, and the arrow is in every point the point of the arrow is at every point between where it starts and where it ends. It's all there. You know, those time-lapse photographs where, you know, the, you, you sometimes see photographs of cities where they'll open a shutter um, on a camera with very slow film. Do you know what film is? <laughs> okay. with very slow film. And then what you'll just see are streaks of light, which are all the headlights, um, but it's all the headlights put together. Um, or there's an amazing photographer named Shugimoto. Do people know him at all? Um, so what he does, um, among the things that he does, they're, they're incredibly beautiful. It's a large set. Sorry? It's
1: a large set.
0: Among Yes, it's a large set what he does, but among the things that he does is he will take a camera and bring it to a movie theater and he'll, um, with extremely slow film, that means extremely insensitive film, and he'll open the camera, he'll open the shutter and keep it open um, for like six hours. And what happens in the course of the six hours is there's a movie um, playing on the screen And there are people going in and out of the theater. And in the course of the six hours, the film picks up all the light that it can. But um, it's very insensitive, so it takes a lot of light to make any difference in the film. And what'll happen at the end of six hours is the screen will be perfectly bright and perfectly white in the photograph that he's taking. Um, And the theater will just be beautifully lit and it will look, usually, unless it's an incredibly popular movie, in which case they wouldn't let him do this, um, the theater will look empty. And the reason for this is that what he's taken is, um, let's say, a six-hour exposure. And in that six-hour exposure, the, f- the screen has been lit the whole time, but no particular image has stayed on the screen more than 124th of a second. So light has gone all around the screen, and over the course of the six hours, as Ad- Annex Amanda says, um, the screen becomes perfectly just. That is, it changes, every bit of the screen changes. Um, and what was dark becomes light, what was light becomes dark on the screen, what was red becomes blue, what was blue becomes red. But over the course of six hours, over the course of watching three movies, let's say, um, every part of the screen has been equally illuminated. And the picture of six hours of screen time is perfectly uniform. That is what Anaximander is calling justice. Um, the Shugimoto, S-U-G-I-M-O-T-O. I'll bring in a book of his, of his stuff. Um, If he, not him, but someone like him, whose name I now forget, um, did similar photographs of clocks in hotel rooms. So if you open, if you use very slow film and you take a picture of a clock for 12 hours, um, you'll see everything in the room. And in his photographs, the things you see in the room are really um, really beautifully lit. You'll see everything in the room but you'll know that, that this was not just a snapshot because if you look at the clock, what will you see? You'll see no hands. The, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, see? That's why I asked you whether you know what film is. Um, no, this is a clock with hands, kind of like, yeah, like that one. So over the course of 12 hours, no hand of the clock has been still long enough for the film to pick up where it is. So the course of 12 hours, the hands have disappeared. Um, If you look at Victorian photographs, if you ever go look at photographs from the 1850s or 60s, those are very long exposures, um, sometimes five or six minutes. If you think of Juliet Margaret Cameron photographs, for example, um, which are posed photographs that kind of look like paintings. um, And those exposures are five or six minutes. What you don't realize, but what we know from documentary evidence is that photographers would start the exposure, then they'd see the kid move a little bit, and they will walk into the frame, readjust the kid's head, and walk out with the camera open the whole time, but you never see the photographer because the photographer wasn't in the shot long enough to get picked up by the film. So in fact, there are invisible people moving through those photographs. And I wouldn't be surprised if eventually someone comes up with a sufficiently sensitive algorithm for um, getting very, very tiny signals out of the noise um, and can pick some of that stuff up. But, um, but so far it hasn't been done. But you have people going in and leaving those photographs. So the point about this, it's an analogy. And the analogy is that what we're looking at at any moment is just a slice of what gets compressed into a Shugimoto photograph, but what decompressed is 6 or 8 or 12 or 24 hours long, but that length is static. That's what it is in the universe there is a part of the universe which is 24 units long and it's just a part of the universe. Just the way there's this book which is, let's say, 8 by 2 by 5 and it's part of the universe and part of this room is this book. In the universe, there's also something which is 24 units long and It's also just hanging out in the universe, not moving, just as the book isn't moving right now. It's also hanging out in the universe, but the units are hours. Not inches or meters or feet, but hours. So there's this 24-hour thing long that's hanging out unmovingly in the universe. The arrow from the bow to the martyr who's being killed by an arrow or to... um, Um, Harold of Hastings or Harold, whatever his name is in the Battle of Hastings um, that arrow is maybe you know, half a second long so it's a foot long and maybe a quarter of an inch in diameter and half a second long also in the universe there's this half second long arrow so that seems to solve the problem except we still Experience time. It solves the problem out there. It's all happening at once. Except that at once means from a four-dimensional point of view, not from our point of view. But from our point of view, we still have the experience of time. And that experience of time is still something that Zeno's paradoxes seem to mess with. Yeah? I I was
2: just going to say that Uh, The problem I keep kind of having is that um, when you're saying things like uh, the arrow is only there for half a second, well, I mean, after it hits, whoever's being shot, it still exists. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, well, the person who shot was there for 33 years, um, and (laughs) then, you know, so so that person was 5 feet tall and 33 years long.
2: Right, but, I mean... Their physical body still exists, even if there's an arrow sticking out
0: yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it depends on your de- definition of object, because theoretically, even after whatever it is decays away, you can track each individual right. atom until the end. Of yeah. The time. Exactly. I,
3: th- I think that's the point that so. like you can only look at this stuff in hindsight, so you can only
0: look at it at the end of time,
3: but none of it exists anymore. Yeah. matter
0: well, then we wouldn't worry about it anymore because we get to the very end of things and just be able to look back and say, oh, just as we look back at our own, at our own memories. But still, there is what um, will later be called by contemporary of Einstein, there is still the phenomenology that is the experience um, rather than the actual physical fact, the phenomenology of internal time consciousness. That's the name of a book. Um, And the whole point is, time may not exist, but it sure feels like it does, so let's talk about what that feeling is. You know, you're not going to find on your deathbed that if someone comes to you and says, you know, you shouldn't really worry because time doesn't exist, um, you're not going to find that comforting. (laughs) You're not going to say, sorry? In
1: Slaughterhouse-Five, they say something died, so it
0: goes. So it goes, exactly, because Billy Pilgrim has become unstuck in time. Yeah, someone's hand was up. Um, all right, so Aristotle then um, is interested in this question, does time exist or not? So one the first thing that I wanted you to look at just to see his interest in that question is what he says, this is, um, if you have it, it's page 377, it's chapter 14 of book four of the physics, he asks, it is also worth considering how time can be related to the soul and why time is thought to be in everything both in earth and in sea and in heaven. So here's a question. He notices that we think time applies to everything and he says it's worth asking why we think that. We look at the fixed stars and we don't see anything changing in the fixed stars. And yet, we think that it's the same time on Alpha Centauri as it is on Earth. Not that, you know, or it's the same, it's the same time um, with respect to Greenwich Mean Time. That, that universal time um, applies even to Alpha Centauri. Um, so the question is, why would we think that? The stars aren't moving, the stars are exactly the same all the time and yet it's part of our idea of time that there's time there too in the stars. Now there obviously is because we see supernovas, Um, that is the fixed stars do change sometimes. Um, you see a star, and then it explodes, and then it disappears. And um, humans see this with naked eye maybe every two or 300 years. And with telescopes, I think we see it every couple of weeks. I mean, I don't see it, but people see it. Yeah? When you
3: say time, do you just
0: really change? Or is there, like, I, when you say when you, like we have this experience of time, what, what do you mean? Like, we have experience of things changing. So if no one asks me, I know what I mean. <laughs> um, yeah, we have an experience, well, not only do we have an experience of things changing, but we also have an experience of time as, as going one way, often called time's arrow. Um, that is, uh, we think that the future is coming and the past is gone for good. Um, and if it were just change, there would be no reason to think that. Yeah. Well, the the question is, if we knew, what would it, I think that's a really good question. Um, it's a question that Augustine asks, actually, um, because we can't, we can't get to the future and we can't get to the past. Um, the only way we can get to the future is by waiting. Um, so maybe if we know what the future is going to be, though, a question you could ask is what difference would, would that make? Um, And it might make a tremendous difference. That is to say, um, if we had the same knowledge of the future that we did of the past, we might find ourselves as having exactly the same concerns about the future that we do about the past, or the same lack of concern. That is, our relation to the future might then be the same as it is um, to the past. It might be that our sense of the direction of time um, is heavily related to uncertainty, about the future compared to um relative certainty about the past. I mean, I think these are all really worthwhile questions. Yeah, joy. No, Slaughterhouse
4: like, really is about sort of thinking about
3: existence
0: like, that. Way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um yeah.
4: for the usual uncertainty of, you know, maybe we won't wake up tomorrow sort of thing, we can we can look forward to things like surgery, right? Yeah. And so we say, we're going to have surgery next week. It's going to hurt a lot. I'm aware of how much it's going to hurt. I've had it before. You know, I, I know I'm fully cognizant of what is going to happen. Yeah. But you don't feel the same way about it as you feel about the surgery that you had last year. Yeah. You, know, you have the facts, and it hurt as much in the past as it will hurt in the but the, but the fact that we feel like it hasn't come to pass even you know even even if we had an identical experience, mm-hmm. there's something about um, the way that we view things as getting bigger or like looming in some sense that it makes a case for that there couldn't not only does it not matter if we know what the future is, but we couldn't have any other,
0: yeah, I would rather have had painful surgery yesterday and be completely over it than to know that I'm going to have the same painful surgery a year from now. So it's not that it's, that it's coming up um, simply because even a year from now, it's something that um, I know is coming and I really don't want, whereas if it's over, it's over, and that's great. That's part of our... Um, internal relation to time. Um, There are actually a lot of experiments about about this, um, really interesting experiments. Um, People, uh, for example, um, really unexpectedly will describe and even um, be willing to submit to an experience with greater peak pain as long as that pain, as the peak of the pain isn't the last part of the experience, um, but that the pain diminishes. So if you give, pe- if you give two people, in, in, and they have in experiments, um, two different kinds of experiences of pain. One is um, you put someone's hand in very hot water, and then um, you cool the water fairly rapidly, and then they take their hand out. And the other experience is you put their hand so you put their hand into water, you heat the water rapidly, it gets very hot, then you cool the water rapidly and it cools off. Um, you give them that experience, and then you give them another experience, which is you heat the water very rapidly, but not as hot as in the first time. And then they can just pull their hand out once you get the maximum heat. So in one experiment, you heat the water to 140 degrees and then you cool it back down to 100 degrees. In the other experiment, you heat the water to 130 degrees and then they can pull their hand out. Um, And um, the second time, the water's not as hot and they don't have their hand in the water as long. If you then give them a choice of repeating one or the other of those, they have to repeat one or the other, Most people will take the 140 degrees followed by the cooling off of the water rather than the 130 degrees. And now I can take my hand out. And the $200 for doing the test. Yeah, but that makes no sense. That is, the pain is greater and the discomfort is longer, but the trajectory of the experience is such that they prefer the greater and longer discomfort. So we have very, very unexpected relations to time and pain, um, from what you would think purely rationally. Isabel. I just wanted to respond to a question
3: whether um, it would um, help to know in the future to be able to visualize time as of mm-hmm. this inert thing. Um, I think there's a difference between seeing into the future um, and actually being at that point. Mm-hmm, Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think that looking at your memories is sort of like that because you see yourself as a child and and what you did yesterday almost at the same
0: time. Yeah. You do see um, our past as a child. Yes. And in that way, we can visualize. Okay, good. Yeah, there is a sense in which our past selves, we own our past selves, and we actually disown our future selves. Yeah. Good. Yeah. 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 Abby. Okay. Yeah. I doesn't this whole time not like just way Doesn't imply
2: predestination? we So.
0: Well, John Milton. So what Milton says about it, and what Augustine says about it, is Milton says for knowing, so Milton's God um, knows the future. And what happens in Paradise Lost, which we're not doing in this class, but should, but we're not. Um, What happens in Paradise Lost is God um, is talking to the angels in heaven. And he says, I just created human beings and um, they're good people, um, but I gave them free will. Um, because if I don't give them free will they can't be good if you don't have free will you're not good because you're not anything Um, so I gave them free will and you know what they're gonna eat this apple here's a spoiler they're gonna eat this apple and they're going to fall they're gonna sin disobey me fall those ingrates and the angels are sort of puzzled by God being angry at these good people on earth who are actually right then on earth singing hymns of praise to God. And God says, the fact that I know that they're going to fall has no influence on what they do. They would have fallen whether I knew it or not. And the argument that he's making and that he proceeds to make in a little bit more detail, which and it's an argument that comes out of Augustine, actually. The argument that he's making is, we don't look at bad choices we made in the past and say, oh, that that was predestination, because if it weren't predestination, I could undo it now. In other words, our relation to the past is we have no trouble with the idea that the past is fixed. We fixed it that way. We did what we did, and the result is that we did what we did. Um, And having done it, it's done. It's a done deal. It's a done thing. In the future, we will tautologously, by tautology. That is, and tautology is a word I hope you're recognizing from reading Hilbert and reading um, Poincaré and reading Russell. We, by tautology, will do what we'll do. And whatever we do, we'll do. There's, there's nothing controversial about that. Whatever we will do, we will do. And that fact means that it is absolutely the case that what we will do, we will do, just as it is the case that what we did, we did. We don't worry about the fact that what we did is done forever, so we shouldn't worry either about the fact that what we will do, we will do forever. Um, So the way Augustine all but puts it, the way Milton all but puts it is to say, God can remember the future. God's knowledge of the future is like our knowledge of the past. It's the kind of knowledge memory gives you. It's not that the future and the past are somehow fixed, or it's not that the future is fixed any more than the past was fixed until someone did the things that fixed it. The future is only fixed to the extent that someone will do the things that will fix it. Yeah.
3: It, that that really depends on what your religious beliefs are. And yeah. What you view. Because in Judaism, it's not an idea of original sin and yeah. they are horrendous. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. Not repenting for what they did yeah. because honestly, none of us would exist. Yeah. If you look at it that way, Saying But, you know, if you're looking at it from Christianity, then it's the original sin. So that's very subjective of what your beliefs are.
0: Yeah, but here the only question is, and for Milton it comes up in the context of original sin, but the only question is, if God is omniscient, does he know the future? And if he knows the future, does that mean we don't have free will? So both um, Judaism and a certain strain of Christianity will say, That there is no contradiction between God being omniscient, that is to say so omniscient that he knows the future, um, and our having free will. Um, Some people think "How how can both those things be true, they're a contradiction, but the argument is no, they're not a contradiction. Yeah.
3: According to what I know, or it's based on chance. So in either case, it's not like we, we have like we were really having free will. I,
0: okay, this, so we're th- gonna let two more worms out of this can, um, <laughs> and then we're gonna go back to to the question of time itself. Yeah, Carol. I think I think that argument only
3: holds true for looking at like the long exposure view of existence, which is that like first matters, who you and the positive, et cetera, and that everything over time, over the course of your life, resulted in what your thoughts were and what you did. That, and that's true, That doesn't talk about the experience of being alive. Mm-hmm. It just says that having had a life was predetermined. We can still do that within a time, though. Like, just no, like, no two a worms,
0: and Amanda's got the second one. Sorry. No, no, no. It's okay. I didn't mean you. You can you can finish your follow up.
3: Oh yeah, just um, um, just that um, like if you like, I'm going to make a decision right now, of whether to buy milk or not. I mean, then I'm I'm looking at like the past decisions I've made at this point in time, not necessarily when I'm dead, but like right now. And yeah, I'm looking at like my life experience up to this point, but I'm not having to look.
0: So, yeah, part of this comes up with, a, with a, in a paradoxical question, which is, is there such a thing as weakness of the will? Um, because it feels like there is. Um, everyone has experienced weakness of the will. But you just do what you do, and weakness of the will doesn't come into it. So there is a question, um, but we're, and we may get back to it, but we won't do it now. But Amanda? Well, in some
3: ways it goes to nature versus nurture yeah. and that whole idea of, of you know, what determines how you'll turn out, and it's still, you know, that that still doesn't say looking at what you've done in the past when faced with a specific situation. That doesn't mean you're going to go the exact same way, like with a carton of milk, because you've bought a carton of milk every time you've been at a grocery store in the past. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to buy it again. Maybe you'll walk in and decide, I want almond milk, or I just found out I'm lactose intolerant. But all of you know, that is stuff that's determining your decision. Like you're, but it's still your, your choice. You, you don't, if you're lactose you intolerant, you don't have to listen.
0: Okay, so look, this can go on forever, and it's then we'd have a real experience. For, for a, a
3: serial killer, they can say, well, it's my nature. But there are many... Wait, so what cereal what does a serial
0: killer use. put his milk in?
3: There
0: uh, are many, most psychopaths don't Serial <laughs> Okay. the cereal. All right, okay. <laughs> Look, there, there are two, here, here's a way of at least snipping away at this Gordian Knot. David Hume, the great philosopher David Hume, basically, um, he, he was what's called a compatibilist. And the idea of compatibilism is the argument that we don't have free will is right, and the argument that we do have free will is right and um, they're compatible with each other. And the way he puts it is to say, if someone tells me that I'm not a product of the laws of physics and chemistry and everything else, you know, what what the, the chemistry of my neurohumors, although he didn't put it that way, he would... Um, the biochemistry of what's going on in my brain and the physics of what's going on in the world around me and so on, if someone says to me that that's not all scientifically determinate, that each state um, scientifically and invariably produces the next state, if they say that isn't true, I don't know what they mean. But if they say that it's not my choice whether I'm going to have a Coke or a Pepsi or paper or plastic, I also don't know what they mean. So he's basically saying the argument against free will is one that he just can't buy and the argument against determinism is one that he just can't buy. So one, we're really not going to go any more on this except I'm going to say one thing to put in your pipe and smoke if you (laughs) want to. Um, We, in thinking about other people, we see them as doing some things freely and others not. And essentially a good touchstone for whether you think someone else is acting out of free will or acting out of laws of determination is whether you get pissed at them or not for what they're doing. Yeah. Um, So if we get angry only at things we think are done freely, and if they're not done freely, if we think they're not done freely, um, you know, if someone is thrown out of a building and lands on our toe, we don't say, you jerk, you hurt my toe, um, if they can hear us before they die. Um, but if someone stomps on your toe intentionally, we do say, you jerk, you jerk. So we could just say intention is really um, the question that we want. And it doesn't matter where intention comes from. Let's just, instead of talking about freedom, let's talk about intention. Um, because intention is something that we do generally accept that people have, people do some things intentionally, some not. Um, and what they do intentionally, that's where we tend to use the language of freedom. Um, we can say it's synonymous. But we'll get back to this question. We don't need to do it now. Um, the thing that I want to say here, or I want to show you Aristotle saying, is that he he does ask this question and says some very sharp things in asking this question. Um, how can time be related to the soul? Why is time thought to be in everything, both in earth and in sea and in heaven? Um, it is because it is an attribute or state or movement, since it is the number of movement. And all these things are movable, for they are all in place, and time and movement are together both in respect of potentiality and in respect of actuality. I think he's offering that as a question, though it looks like a statement. Um, So one quick thing to notice is that what he's saying is time is something that you count. It's counting movement. Um, What you do is you look at things moving and you measure, what by count he means measure, Um, you count how long it's moving. Um, So then he goes on to say, whether if soul did not exist, time would exist or not is a question that may may fairly be asked. So if there was no mind, what he means by soul, um, the Greek word is psyche. Um, If there was no psyche, no mind, would there be time? And his answer suggests that there wouldn't. For if there cannot be someone to count, there cannot be anything that can be counted either. So that evidently there cannot be number, for number is is either what has been or what can be counted. So time, he's here suggesting very strongly, is a subjective experience. Now he's not saying motion is subjective. There is motion, but we perceive motion through a filter that we call time. Kant is going to make the same argument. that time belongs to the mind, not to the world. Time is something that the mind imposes on its perceptions of the world. Um, Kant says the same thing about space Um, and why he says that about space is also implicit in Aristotle but just notice that Aristotle is raising a really interesting question which is would there be time if there was no mind and he's not saying that there wouldn't be motion if there was no mind what he's essentially asking is if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one there to see it does it take any time to fall? And that's not the same question as does it really fall. Um, it does fall, but it's motion, but not understood through the template of time. So he's saying that time is a template from the mind of motion, which is simply what is among the things that are, are things that are moving. Now, I, I, no, I need to push this. Um, So Aristotle asks a question. It's not explicit in the passages that you've read, but it's there. First of all, he's asking this question about motion, and he's thinking, okay, so if something moves from A to B, then it moves, um, where is it at the point where we would say it's moved from A to B? And we can divide it up until we say it's no longer here, but it's actually moved from here to here. Where does that happen? Now, the way this is in modern philosophical um, commentaries or meditations upon Aristotle, um, there's a simple way of asking the question that Aristotle is asking. So if, to give one example, you say the train leaves at noon sharp. So at 12 o'clock sharp, the train will leave. At 12 o'clock sharp, is the train moving or not moving? So it leaves at 12 sharp. At 12 sharp, is it moving or not moving? Not moving. But if it's leaving at 12 sharp? It's it starts moving, that's the whole problem.
2: I mean, the initial velocity is <laughs> zero, so it just starts. <laughs> yes, you can be instantaneous
0: velocity. Yeah, if you can't talk about motion in one instant, then then Zeno would be right.
2: Zeno is wrong.
0: Okay, but that's because it has to be moving at every instant or you you have to be able to talk about something moving at an instant. That's what Aristotle says. Another example would be you throw a ball into the air and then it falls down. When it hits its apex, is it does it stop? Yes. Really? For how long? Zero on the instant time. So you're just dodging the question. Huh? So, so, it, how long does it stop? For one three-dimensional
1: cross section of the fourth dimension.
0: So one one, one three-dimensional, and how, how um, thick is that three-dimensional cross section? About
1: the size of a cube. <laughs> Even if that movement wasn't, when you graph that, zero uh, parabolic, but was rather cubic, it could stop and then keep going at a rate that it would fall to Earth up. Yeah. That's, that's to
0: say it's not doing that. it's the forces that Einstein created that <laughs> help make this all make sense. Yeah, it could be, um, if, if there really is a repulsive force. But just hang on. What Aristotle wants to know is he wants to look at just normal experiences, and what he's trying to do is describe them right. And so he has an idea, which is that motion is, not, is essentially motion is not a problem and the reason motion isn't a problem is that things are moving. What you don't want to do, as Zeno tries to do, is say motion is a problem because at any instant nothing is moving. So how does it get moving to the next instant? And Aristotle says, no, it's not the case that at any instant things aren't moving. They are moving. Um, That is just that simple. They really are moving at every instant. Um, And Zeno says, but look, at this point, the arrow arrow is here. So doesn't that prove that at any instant, the arrow isn't moving? And um, Aristotle understands the force of that question because if it's here, then it's not here. But But if it's moving from here to here, then somehow it's in both places at once. Now, here is a solution that is that looks really good and that Aristotle is more or less offering, he's saying that the problem with the way Zeno is thinking about things is that Zeno thinks that space is an entity, that there is a thing called space that when you look at an arrow moving, what it's doing is moving through something not moving, namely space. That space is an unmoving thing in which all motion occurs. And it's very easy to think that way. That's what coordinate systems, although they didn't have them for another 3,000 years, uh, or 2,000 years, but that's what coordinate systems which Descartes invented. um, That's what coordinate systems um, make you think or what coordinate systems really do is they're the formalization of that kind of thought. Um, So an arrow is moving through the air and what we say is it's moving with respect to the ground. The ground is still but the arrow is moving it's moving with respect to the air, although Aristotle wouldn't have thought much about about that question. Um, But we can see that the arrow is moving and we define motion as motion through space. And what Aristotle is saying is, if you define motion as motion through space, then you're saying that there are a bunch of places, as in the coordinate system, there are a bunch of coordinates, there are a bunch of places in space, they exist, And they're not moving. And the arrow's moving from one to the next to the next to the next. It's moving to certain markers through space. But if you say space is nothing, it's not a thing that exists and that's not moving. There's no such thing as unmoving space. Space is really nothing. It's not an empty thing. It's not a thing which has had all other stuff sucked out of it so that all that's left is space, there really is no such thing as space, except in the sense that there's nothing there. So an arrow isn't moving through space. It's just moving. That's all that that means, that an arrow is in one relation to another thing that's also just hanging out within this nothingness and then a little while later, it's in another relation to that other thing. But we don't fix it at any given point. We don't say at point T1, it, has, it is, at time T1, it is at space S1. There is no space for it to be at. It's just moving, and motion is more primordial than the space through which it's supposedly moving through. Now, this idea of the emptiness of space is something that you have been taught against since you first started learning geometry. The whole point about the number line and about geometry and about coordinate systems and so on is that we take, a, we take space and we fix it, and then we look at how things move with respect to this background. But the question, does space exist? The question, does space exist, that's a question that tormented Descartes. So do people know what the ether is, sometimes called the luminiferous ether? If I, it, it, You've heard of it? Yeah, I
3: think we, we talked about it a while
0: ago. Yeah, we did. Um, so Descartes, so Einstein basically proved that ether didn't exist. <laughs> it was thought until Einstein, and in fact, um, for, for several years after Einstein, that the universe was filled with a substance just as our atmosphere is filled with air, is air, the universe had a much more subtle atmosphere called ether, that the entire universe was filled with stuff. And the stuff that the universe was filled with, scientifically, the way this was thought about at the end of the 19th century, was, do people know what waves are? So you know, for example, that when a wave is coming in on a beach, the water isn't really moving towards you. What's happening is a disturbance in the water is moving towards you just the way people used to do the wave when the Red Sox played decently. So when you go to Fenway Park and people are doing the wave around Fenway Park, you've seen that on TV, you've been part of it maybe, people aren't running around Fenway Park but emotion is moving through the people that are sitting around Fenway Park. So, what happens is that there's emotion. It's like dominoes, also, are like that. So, if you knock down some dominoes, you know, if you've ever seen the TV shows where a mile's worth of dominoes are knocked down, it looks like there's this amazing motion just going down across all these dominoes. And there is but it's not really the dominoes that are moving. They're only moving a domino length each. But what arises out of the dominoes falling is a motion through the whole train of dominoes. What arises out of people doing the wave in Fenway Park is a motion through the whole crowd. What happens when a wave hits a beach is that water is is oscillating up and down and... Some water goes down, forcing some water up, forcing some more water down. It's not that the water is moving towards the beach. The water is just moving up and down vertically. Does everyone know that? This is one of those things they teach you in high school and no one can really picture it. But the water is just moving up and down (coughs) vertically. But what's happening is the oscillation is passing through the water in the same way that it passes through a string of dominoes or that it passes through the crowd in Fenway Park. So that is a somewhat simplified but genuine um, truth about waves. That's what happens with sound waves. When you hear me talk, sound waves are slightly more complicated because they're also longitudinal. But when you hear me talk, essentially what's happening is not that my voice is somehow radiating from my mouth, but that vibrations in the air are oscillating and causing further vibrations which eventually cause your ears to vibrate. Light is a wave. So it was thought until the beginning of the 20th century that ether that light was the oscillation of ether no, that wait, the, we don't
2: know that light's a wave it could be a particle yeah,
0: yeah but it, it definitely is a wave we do know that it's a wave you yeah, know we know it's a wave we yeah, also know it's a particle yeah we know it we yeah, know it's, <laughs> it's both because it's all things part of are both a wave. no no, no. Okay. it's not um, it's both But we do know that it's a wave because we get interference patterns um, that only waves could give you. Yeah. Um, Yeah, all you have to do is hold your fingers very close together and look at light and the shadows that your fingers, um, that appear between your fingers prove that it's a wave. Um, So the question is, so what's oscillating when light moves through the universe? And the answer until the beginning of the 20th century was easy, ether but then there is none, and that becomes really weird. Um.
2: Was
0: a to the <laughs> <laughs> okay, so knock-knock. Who's there? Ether. Ether. Ether bunny. Okay. <laughs> One-to-one correspondence. No, never mind. Um, all right. See you next Tuesday. Um. Where are
1: going? Sorry? Where do the recordings go